And now, in the light of the words of that 42nd Psalm, and in preparation for the text this morning from Matthew 5, a few words to the children. And since all of us are God's children, a few words to us all about corn. An amazing vegetable. You can buy it and eat it in various forms, on the cob, out of a can, frozen. You can eat it in cornstarch, cornmeal, corn oil, corn syrup, and probably other forms as well. Corn is used in the manufacture and processing of things like paint and glue and powder and fuel and plastic and nylon and probably other things as well. But the one thing I wanted you to think about this morning is a particular kind of corn that you'll probably all recognize when you see it in its raw form. This corn. Not very edible, hard, impossible to chew, dangerous actually for your teeth, until it's heated and something happens to pop corn and transforms it into popped corn. The moisture inside expands when it's heated and boom, it explodes. And all the good stuff inside comes out for us. Now, it may be a bit of a stretch, but I wanted you to think about how that's what Christians ought to be like. Transformed by the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ from pop corn, not much good for anything, to popped corn, delicious to eat and good for us exploding with all the good inside and revealing it to us. Keep that picture in mind as we think together about this text, a fourth of Jesus' Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You are what you eat, the old saying goes. Are you really? Well, not literally, of course, but there is a sense in which you are not only the sweets and donuts and forbidden things, but the fruits and the vegetables and the good stuff you put into your mouth. You also are or become the desires, the attitudes, the possessions that you put into your heart. I think we can accurately say, writes R. Kent Hughes, that Elvis Presley never understood this. His life was a pitiful pursuit of materialism and sensuality. 
In Elvis's heyday, he earned between $5 million and $6 million a year. It's estimated that he grossed $100 million in his first two years of stardom. He had three jets, two Cadillacs, a Rolls-Royce, Lincoln Continental, Buick, and Chrysler station wagons, a Jeep, a dune buggy, a converted bus, and three motorcycles. His favorite car was his 1960 Cadillac limousine. The top was covered with pearl white Naga hide. The body was sprayed with 40 coats of a specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds and fish scales. Nearly all the metal trim was plated with 18 karat gold. Inside the car, there were two gold flake telephones, a gold vanity case containing a gold electric razor and gold hair clippers, an electric shoe buffer, a gold-plated television, a record player, an amplifier, air conditioning, and a refrigerator that was capable of making ice in two minutes. He had everything. Elvis's sensuality was legendary. Those friends and relatives most familiar with his state of mind in the last months of his life ironically and tragically reveal that Elvis had very much become a victim of his appetites. He was what he had eaten in the profoundest sense. Elvis Presley's tragic life dramatizes the significance of the Lord's teaching in the fourth beatitude because in it Jesus sets forth the appetite and menu that brings spiritual well-being. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In this splendidly paradoxical sentence, Jesus tells us what we ought to eat and how we must eat it if we are to have spiritual health and ultimate satisfaction. Spiritual health comes from hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Listen to William Barclay's expanded paraphrase of this familiar beatitude. Oh, the bliss of the one who longs for total righteousness as a starving person longs for food and a person perishing of thirst longs for water, for that one will be truly satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We tend to think of hunger this way. If I say to you right now, in two hours or so, you'll be having lunch, what are you going to eat? Or if I phrase the question this way, in two hours or so you're going to be having lunch, what would you most like to eat of anything on a menu? Chances are, your mouth begins to water. And you instinctively lick your lips in anticipation. That's hunger. Or if I were to say to you, 
How do you feel when somebody in front of you opens a cold water and takes a big swig and you suddenly realize it feel pretty good going down your throat. That's thirst. But in Jesus' day, the audience was living on the edge. Not just the edge of poverty, but the edge of hunger and thirst. Barely making enough to make ends meet for a given week. On special occasions, maybe once a week, eating meat or something substantial, not just for health reasons, but for economic reasons. And anywhere they went, making sure that they were within reach of water. To this day, I know because I toured Palestine some years ago and was told never be without a bottle of water in a matter of hours, without even realizing it was happening, you could dehydrate. It's a matter of life and death in that land. In that context, William Barclay writes, the fourth beatitude is in reality a question and a challenge. In effect, it demands, how much do you want goodness? Do you want it as much as a starving person wants food? And as much as a person dying of thirst wants water? How intense is your desire for goodness? It points us ultimately to what could be called blessed emptiness, or maybe more understandably, happy hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, now, what I ask respectfully, what is righteousness? What is it we're supposed to be starving for and without which we are dangerously dehydrating? Well, it is happiness of, of a sort. Jesus, after all, begins every one of his beatitudes with that word, We're familiar with blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. But in reality, he said happy are, happy are. Or as Barclay always puts it, oh, the happiness of those who are hungry and thirsty in this case. Now, that's not the kind of happiness the world is interested in. Happiness for the world is indulgence and selfishness. And the freedom to do and buy and eat and drink and have and own and go where I please. But this happiness is much closer to holiness. And holiness is God-likeness. And God-likeness is a life that in every aspect and facet points to God, shows God reveals God, looks like God. There's an unfortunate perversion of righteousness among many Christians today, and that is to equate righteousness with being right. Oh, being right is something we could get hungry and thirsty about. 
But in our efforts to be right, and to be seen as right, and to be declared by others as right, we can do some pretty unrighteous things. Righteousness, we regularly forget, is not being as correct as God, but behaving the way God would in a given instance or situation. A British preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, there are large numbers of people in the Christian church who seem to spend the whole of their life seeking something which they can never find, seeking for some kind of happiness and blessedness. They go around from meeting to meeting and convention to convention, always hoping that it's going to fill them with joy and flood them with some ecstasy. They see that other people have had it, but they themselves did not seem to get it. Now that is not surprising. We are not meant to hunger and thirst after experiences. We are not meant to hunger and thirst after blessedness. If we want to be truly happy and blessed, we must hunger and thirst after righteousness. We must not put blessedness or happiness or experience in the first place. Jesus put it this way in this very same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be yours as well. That's the one who's right, and that's what's right to do. Now we could, and should, as a matter of fact, ask also, where is this righteousness, this God-likeness supposed to be shown? In church? Well, I certainly would hope so. In my personal devotional life? Of course, it ought to be there. At an intersection, stopped by an interminable red light, when I'm already late for an appointment? Yeah, there too. When my team is losing and the calls are all going against us? Yeah, then as well. When I have the privilege of being served by the least competent of all the wait staff in a local restaurant? Yeah. When I absently mindedly pick up the phone when it rings and forget to look at who it might be, and it's a telemarketer? Then too. When I'm just absent mindedly going through all the channels on the TV looking for something to watch? Yeah, there too. When I'm out in the lobby after a service, when it's permissible to gather there to visit, and I'm with my friends and we're talking. Yeah. And when that is permissible, and my group of friends sees another group of friends on the other side of the room, and we start talking about them. Yeah, then too. Always? Yeah. Everywhere? Yeah. And the way Jesus phrases it grammatically 
makes the point. Without going into Greek grammar, let me just say, and trust me, this is true, the way Jesus puts it, he means to say, I don't want you just to take a little taste of righteousness or have a little sip of righteousness. Not even just a heaping helping of righteousness or a great big 16-ounce tall glassful of it, but all you can possibly get. God-likeness that oozes into every corner and crevice of your life. Godliness that flavors every aspect of every relationship you have in this life. Righteousness that goes all the way. Whoever really hungers and thirsts after righteousness, James Montgomery Boyce writes, must long for a perfect righteousness. And this means, therefore, a righteousness equal to and identical with God's. R. Kent Hughes, whom I quoted at the outset, describes it this way. This desire to live in compliance with God's will is expansive. It includes an increasing sense of a need for God, a desire to be like him. To hunger and thirst for this righteousness means longing after the practical righteousness that the Beatitudes represent both personally and in the world. The one who hungers and thirsts wants the character of the kingdom. He pants after the fruit of the Spirit. He wants God's will and all it entails. And the goal is not just being a little bit better tomorrow than I was today, but being as righteous as I can possibly ever become. This simple-sounding beatitude also tells us something not only about what we ought to want and how much of it we ought to want, but how we ought to want it. This is no casual enterprise trying to be a little better now and then. It's not simply a desire for a slight improvement. This is a desire to be godlike in every aspect of my life, that it's as strong as my hunger for food would be if I were starving, or as strong as my desire for a drink would be if I was dying of thirst. We can't be casual about it. This illustration really spoke to me. It's old. Dr. E.M. Blakelock recorded it in his commentary, and he wrote decades ago. He said he had read a book called The Last Crusade by Major V. Gilbert. It's the story of the British liberation of Lebanon in World War I. This is what he wrote. Driving up from Beersheba, a combined force of British, Australians, and New Zealanders were pressing on the rear of the Turkish retreat over arid desert. The attack outdistanced its water-carrying camel train. Water bottles were empty. The sun blazed pitilessly out of a sky where the vultures wheeled expectantly. Our heads ached and our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. Our tongues began to swell. Our lips turned to purplish black and burst 
Those who dropped out of the column were never seen again. But the desperate force battled on to Sharia. There were wells at Sharia, and had they been unable to take the place by nightfall, thousands were doomed to die of thirst. We fought that day, writes Gilbert, as men fight for their lives. We entered Sharia station on the heels of the retreating Turks. The first objects which met our view were the great stone cisterns full of cold, clear drinking water. In the still night air, the sound of water running into the tanks could be distinctly heard, maddening in its nearness, yet not a man murmured. When orders were given for the battalions to fall in, too deep, facing the cisterns, he describes the stem priorities, the wounded, those on guard duty, then company by company, it took four hours before the last man had his drink of water. And all that time they had been standing 20 feet from a low stone wall on the other side of which were thousands of gallons of water. I believe, Major Gilbert concludes, that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on that march from Beersheba to Sharia Wells if such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, for his will in our life, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how right in the fruits of the Spirit we would be. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Those people, Jesus declares, will be filled. One commentator remarked that the fourth beatitude is the most demanding and the most frightening, and with that conclusion, the most comforting of them all. It's not the, the achievement of perfection, it's the longing for it, the hunger for it, the thirst for it, the desire for it that is commended. The achievement of it is not up to us and we couldn't do it if we thought it was. For they will be filled. It's passive. God is the one who fills us. Martin Luther, in his typically emphatic way, put it like this. The command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out, if that's where you have been, and to offer your hands and your feet and your whole body and to wager everything you have and can do. What is required, he goes on, is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated, one that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right, despising everything that hinders this end. If you cannot make the world completely pious, then do what you can. Remember Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you to do, that asks you for a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Constantly hungry and thirsty for more of God and continually filled. The promise of Jesus for those who are as eager to be like him as they are to stay alive. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Here's the amplified Bible rendition of that beatitude. Blessed and fortunate and happy and spiritually prosperous. In that state in which the born-again child of God enjoys his favor and salvation are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uprightness, and right standing with God, for they shall be completely satisfied. Remember David Berkowitz? You may be more familiar with his nickname, Son of Sam. In 1977, David Berkowitz was convicted of six murders and seven attempted murders and sent to prison. He got his nickname, <clears throat> Son of Sam, he said, by following the demonic direction of his neighbor's dog. His neighbor's name was Sam. But when he went to prison, he claimed he had a conversion experience. And from then on, he desired not to be known as Son of Sam, but Son of Hope. He got endorsements from Pat Roberts and Jim Cimbala. But in 2002, a journalist from the Wall Street Journal, 25 years after his conviction, got an interview with him and said that in that interview he expressed very little concern for his victims or their survivors. I asked him, the journalist reported, whom he wanted to see in heaven. He smiled, cupped his chin in his hand, and said, actually, I think about that a lot. He went on, I would like to see Carlo Fay Tucker and King David, Apostle Paul, the Bible characters, Wilfred Owen, no mention of the victims. The journalist titled her piece in the Wall Street Journal, Baffled by Berkowitz. Baffled because there was no evidence of any penitence, no evidence of any reform, no evidence of any confession, no evidence of any hunger and thirst, passionate hunger and thirst for righteousness. We will leave David Berkowitz's fate to God. But in a sense, our own rests in our hands at this very moment. Are you hungry and getting hungrier for righteousness? Are you thirsty and getting thirstier for righteousness? Then take heart, brothers and sisters, for Christ's promise is that you 
will be filled. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the words are simple. They're familiar. We knew them before we came. But you hit us right smack in the heart with their meaning this morning. Oh God, create in us a hunger and a thirst that is never fully satisfied this side of heaven. To be more and more and more like God so as to reveal more and more and more of God to others. Like popped corn exploding and revealing the good that is in us because of you. Give us the amazing and thrilling experience of being filled and refilled and refilled and refilled again and again until we reach perfection with you in eternity. In Christ's name, amen.